from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. At the height of pandemic lockdowns in 2020, we were all searching for positive stories to break up our doom scrolling. And the environment was one of those stories. Now, one very rare positive effect of the past few months has been on the environment. The biggest ever reduction in the volume of carbon dioxide released into the world's atmosphere has been recorded since March. Social media was filled with these before and after images of cities transformed by the absence of people. All over the world, some stunning transformations. From choked streets in India becoming calmer and easier to breathe in, to the most famous landmark in China suddenly looking clearer. The fight against the virus has slowed down many economies at huge cost. But it's also done wonders for the air and for the carbon emissions that are heating up the planet. You may recall many of these. You could see mountain ranges, all of a sudden, a lot of these structures that were previously hidden by air pollution were visible. And there were stories about animals too. Wild goats taking over a Welsh town, coyotes spotted in San Francisco, a puma got lost roaming Santiago. And there were fake ones too, about elephants getting drunk on corn wine in China and dolphins swimming in the Venice canals. But they all came together to create this meme, nature is healing. It was a joke, but it was also serious. And the fixation centered around a simple premise. Look at what wonderful things can happen if people stop their polluting. There was a lot of hoopla in the media about, you know, people are driving less, people are using less energy, carbon emissions are, are going to fall. Like, here's, here's a silver lining, here's a good thing. Mark Kaufman was one of those media people. He was living in Brooklyn at the time, an area hit hard and early by the virus. Holed up in his apartment like everyone else he knew in the city, he began to wonder, is there a silver lining to all this? Could the drop in heat-trapping pollution have a lasting impact on climate change? So he did what reporters do, and he consulted some experts. They basically told me, this pandemic, it's not going to make a dent in the number that global warming cares about. Emissions did actually fall by a lot in 2020, about 6% globally. And that would be a historic shift in normal times. But, you know, a pandemic is not exactly a long-term fix. Of course, it never was a good thing. A terrible pandemic that has killed millions of people globally is never going to be a solution for climate change. Emissions are expected to rise by nearly 5% this year. Even so, the silver lining framing was pervasive. And it came from a concept that's deeply embedded in our collective narrative about environmental solutions. This idea that if individuals just start driving less or eat less red meat or put solar panels on their roofs, we got it covered. So it was during this time that I started thinking about, you know, individual actions and how important they are versus greater systemic change that I really started to think about this term carbon footprint. And so Mark dug into the history of the term, and he soon found that this popular framing wasn't grounded in science or academia. It was the direct result of a public relations campaign. It was a story made up by a multinational oil company. Do you ever use the term carbon footprint in your life? Not anymore. <laughs> Just because I know that I, if when I use it, I'm actively being manipulated by an extremely successful advertising campaign. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. The term carbon footprint is everywhere, but its origins are not rooted in the environmental movement. They're rooted in corporate marketing. 
This week, the story of how an oil company built one of the most pervasive advertising campaigns in history and how they're still fooling us today. Mark Kaufman covers climate change as a reporter for Mashable. He covers science, what we know about the science. And also refuting ideas about climate change that are consistently presented in the popular discourse by climate skeptics, climate deniers, people with with agendas. And that's what brought Mark to the frame of the carbon footprint. The more he learned about the minimal impact the pandemic had on climate change, the more interested he became in the cultural belief that solving the problem depends on individual people changing their behavior. So what I did next was to talk to people that are most informed about the origin of the term carbon footprint and people that uh, historians and researchers that have basically devoted their academic and professional life to documenting and assessing how fossil fuel giants have misled, actively misled the public on, well, climate change broadly, but the causes of and solutions to the changing climate. These conversations brought Mark back, way back, four decades to the 1970s. And in the early 1970s, there's this famous ad from a nonprofit group called Keep America Beautiful. It was actually funded by the Beverage and Packaging Association. So the ad, it aired in 1971. There's dark music playing in the background. And the premise is that some jerk tosses a bag of trash outside of their car while they're driving on a freeway, and that trash spills on, onto the moccasins of an actor, an Italian actor playing a Native American who, who sheds a tear on camera. Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. And why does he shed a tear? Because his world, the, you know, the rivers, the waterways have, have been, you know, defiled by trash. And the big takeaway for the public, the tagline is, People start pollution. People can stop it. And of course, as the narrative would follow, someone watching that would, would think to themselves, how should I do my individual part to decrease the amount of garbage next to freeways instead of focusing on the bigger problem? Which is making plastics, single-use plastics in gargantuan numbers in the first place and selling them to the public. Year after year after year with no plan Zero plans to actually create a way to wean ourselves from this habit, create a recycling system that is effective, and so on and so on. 1971 was an important moment for the cross-section of advertising and environmentalism. Air and water pollution was really bad in America, and people were angry. The first Earth Day was in 1970. That same year, President Nixon signed the Clean Air Act into law and created the Environmental Protection Agency. And industry took notice, and they tried to shift the blame to us. That ad you just heard was created by a bunch of beverage companies. And over the next couple of decades, this same ad strategy played out in recycling. 
Until we get our very own blue box, I'm organizing recycling in our building. Hey, us cliff dwellers want this land to have a future, too. It's worth it. I'm reusing this plastic jug and making it into a funnel and a tool holder. Jars, nuts, bolts, screws, nails. Reuse it for the future. It's worth it. Reduce. Reuse. Recycle. It's worth it. It is worth it. For many of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s, this messaging was everywhere, and we really believed in it. But according to a PBS Frontline investigation, the plastics and petrochemical industry fabricated the entire thing. They created the recycling symbol system on the back of packages and convinced the public through ads that nearly everything was reusable. Turns out only 10% of everything we've ever thrown in recycling bins has been repurposed. And then in the mid-2000s, the public turned its attention from trash to climate change. The fossil fuel companies followed. In the year 2000, the oil giant British Petroleum took its initials, BP, and rebranded them. So in the early 2000s, BP hires PR professionals to create this advertising campaign called Beyond Petroleum. BP wanted to convey it was taking environmental issues, notably climate change, seriously. And they wanted to promote the idea of the carbon footprint. And to push this idea, BP unveiled a new tool, a carbon footprint calculator. So people could calculate the things that we all do in our normal lives, like buying food or, you know, maybe doing something wild, like traveling to visit our parents. You know, they can add up how their actions are contributing to, to climate change. And this was not a trivial campaign. BP ended up spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this Beyond Petroleum advertising, with the carbon footprint message right at the center. Media outlets started using the phrase as a way to frame climate change. And all of us, the people who were conditioned by those recycling messages for decades, bought right into it. A decade and a half later, the term carbon footprint is still everywhere. It was so wildly successful because, as I note in the story, the U.S. EPA now has a carbon footprint calculator. The New York Times does. How to reduce your carbon footprint. The site I work at, Mashable, has a story called How to Shrink Your Carbon Footprint When You Travel. The impact today is highly, highly visible. And why does this matter? Well, it all comes back to the reason Mark got into the story. Of course, our personal lifestyles do matter when it comes to climate change. But as the pandemic showed us, we are not going to solve the problem long term by just working from home and buying a little less stuff. Since 1988, only 100 companies have been the source of 70% of the world's heat-trapping gases. And BP's campaign did a miraculously good job of deflecting that blame for nearly two decades onto us. I mean, there's no question what they were doing. And, and if I can just say, because this is um, continually misunderstood, this was not a conspiracy. This was not a conspiracy. This was out in the open. This was advertising. This was propaganda. This was the same thing as, as you watching TV and Coca-Cola telling you how refreshing it is to, uh, during a Super Bowl ad. This was BP doing that in a very clever way. Um, to get people thinking about how they can do something about climate change while they, you know, haven't done much about it other than produce millions and millions of, of uh, gallons of uh, oil and gas each year. 
not to mention causing one of Alaska's largest oil spills ever in 2006, and the Deepwater Horizon disaster, the largest marine oil spill in history in 2011. Yet the carbon footprint calculator lives on. More about its impact after the break. I want to do something with you here. I'm going to Google carbon footprint and see what comes up to see how pervasive this is. Okay, so I just Googled carbon footprint in the news and (laughs) dozens and dozens of stories pop up that were just published in the last day. So we have... Uh, the carbon footprint and computing cost of a shopping festival. Uh, chefs declare war on a trendy fruit because of its carbon footprint. How to cut your home's carbon footprint and make it climate friendly. Samsung and Intel have a huge carbon footprint. The carbon footprint of artificial intelligence. Rory McIlroy says he's minding his carbon footprint and is pushing for golf to keep going green. This is everywhere. This is literally everywhere. It is the phrase that everyone uses. Yeah, I, you know, beware of, of brushing your teeth in the morning, man. <laughs> uh, so, so this feels to me like an extraordinarily effective marketing campaign. I mean, this goes down in history as one of the most pervasive and effective uses of language to convince people of something that doesn't matter in the way they think it does. Absolutely. It is startling how effective it has been. And and the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. It is it it, it we are mired in it today. It's really amazing. I hate to to give props to an advertising campaign that has actively deceived the public, but you know what? They did a phenomenal job and historians that research this sort of way to manipulate people's thinking about climate change and the carbon footprint agree. And actually, years later, one of the PR professionals who was involved in this campaign came out and said this was pure marketing. Absolutely. That PR professional was named John Kenny, and he, in, in as early as 2006, he acknowledged it was all a devious uh, marketing effort. It was not a sincere effort by PP to promote some sort of shift to, you know, low carbon energy or renewable energy. And uh, he actually was able to get his experience in the New York Times in an op-ed in 2006. And I encourage everyone to read it. What does he say? He quote, I guess looking at it now, Beyond Petroleum is just advertising. It's become mere marketing, perhaps it always was, instead of a genuine genuine attempt to engage the public in the debate or a corporate rallying cry to change the paradigm, end quote. So there you have it from one of the PR professionals himself. It wasn't genuine. It never was genuine. And even today, British Petroleum is still tweeting things, encouraging people to... Um, Calculate their carbon footprint. You can do that now before you decide what you want to do this weekend. You know, should you should you not stream things on Netflix because of its carbon footprint? It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy how how this has festered and got people considering even the smallest things in their life that are really just negligible or in 
insignificant compared to what oil giants are doing every day. Can I posit an optimistic take to this story, which is if we don't actually have to rely on the collective action of hundreds of millions or billions of people to solve this problem, if it really is targeting the top 100 or 500 companies and doing it with strong regulation, that although that is a very tall order and requires battling with very strong centers of power, that it's a simpler problem to deal with rather than relying on so many people. Because if it did rely on us, I think it would be a much harder task. I think it's extremely encouraging that many of the solutions for stabilizing the planet's temperature are, are already known. I think that's superb. We know how to largely produce power in this country without relying on fossil fuels in the decades ahead. Not everyone has to care about climate change for us to fix the problem. And that is a wonderful thing because not everyone will care about climate change. A great example of this is the Montreal Protocol in the late 1980s, when global nations agreed to phase out and ban certain chemicals that were degrading the ozone layer. Huge success. And you know what? We wouldn't have gotten there if instead of having global nations all agree together to phase out these ozone-depleting chemicals, if the solution was, hey, try to reduce your ozone footprint, try, try to use less hairspray, folks, that wouldn't have gotten us anywhere. But that shows what can happen if the system as a whole changes. This idea that managing our carbon footprints isn't the solution to climate change, it can be jarring for some people. Mark got a lot of comments on his story about BP's campaign. Many of them were from environmentally conscious people, and not all of them were positive. I've gotten a, a, a plethora of emails from, from people that are irate about this story. But the story wasn't about individual actions not mattering. It was about everybody just encouraging people to realize or at, at the very least, make a com making a comparison between individual actions and the big, major systemic actions that would really drive down carbon emissions. But individual actions do count, of course. There's lots of sound research showing that when one person does something, like buy an electric vehicle or install rooftop solar, it drastically increases the chances that their friends and neighbors do the same thing. And then there's the most powerful tool of all, using individual power to drive systemic political change. I think a superb example is vote. Your vote really, really does matter. So yeah, so individual actions can matter. And of course, it is stupid to unnecessarily buy single-use plastics and things like that. But no one should ever think that calculating their carbon footprint on whether that they should visit their parents or go see uh, a Rolling Stones concert should be what matters in the big picture. CO2 levels in the atmosphere are the, are, are the highest they've been in around 3 million years. The carbon footprint calculator isn't going to solve that. What's going to solve it is 
fundamental change. Mark Kaufman is a reporter for Mashable. So you're the guy at the holiday table who, when someone just sort of casually says carbon footprint, you say, actually, let me tell you a multi-decade story about an advertising firm and a multinational oil giant who have colluded together to create a sophisticated marketing campaign to convince us all to use that phrase. I actually don't. I actually don't. But I always think it. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Dalvin Abawaje, and Daniel Waldorf. You can follow them on Twitter. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks a lot to the Canary Media team for their partnership. You can find them on social media. Follow them on Twitter. You can follow me, Stephen Lacey, on Twitter or our show handle, carboncopy underscore pod. And before we go, one last follow request. Listen to our new companion podcast, Catalyst, with Shale Khan. We produce that show, and it's all about deep dives into how to decarbonize the economy and where the money is moving to support those technologies. Find it at Canary Media or any podcast app, and you can find this show on any podcast app as well. Just tap that follow or subscribe button. Thanks a lot for being here. Join us here next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. Stephen Lacey.